0: This week, we're going to tackle the book of Job, which is one of the most enigmatic books in the Bible, Um, and we're going to need our backpack tools to help us with this. I love this book. I'm really excited about today. The origins of the story are back way back in the probably in the Genesis time frame. But we know from many of the words used that much of the story was probably not written down until after the fall of Jerusalem, which is why we're doing it here. One of the reasons why we're doing it here. Ezekiel, um, who you know is a prophet who wrote during the Babylonian exile, refers to Job in the same breath as Moses and Noah. He groups them together as historical giants of the faith. So clearly, by the story is very old by the time of the exile but there's there are many words used in job that have aramaic roots and the aramaic language does not begin to displace hebrew as the common language until the time of the exile in babylon so i mean that's why we think one of one of many reasons why we think it's probably a very old story that is just now getting written down. So when I tackle a book like this, the first backpack tool I pull out is to step back and look at how it's put together structurally. Right off the bat, if you open your Bible to Job, you will see that chapters one and two are in prose. And at the very end, the last part of chapter 42 is in prose. Absolutely everything else is highly structured poetry. So that immediately tells us we may end up finding that the beginning and or the ending may have been tacked on in later as a prologue or an epilogue that's a possibility there are other possibilities so we need to do a little more digging to figure this out the next backpack tool I use is to look at who the characters are in the story so the intro which I've shown here in green the intro has Job and his family and his servants God is a major player And in this intro, the Elohim come to present themselves to the Lord in his heavenly court. The Hebrew here literally says sons of gods, but we know that that word Elohim, although plural is often used in a singular sense to refer to Yahweh. So it could be saying sons of God, or it could read literally sons of gods. So Bible translations dance all around this. Some say sons of God. Others are translated as heavenly beings. Others translated as angels. So you know something's up when the translations are all over the place like that. I'm not buying the general, quote, heavenly beings. That's a cop out. That's not what the Hebrew says at all. And I for sure am not buying angels. That's a completely different Hebrew word. Elsewhere in scripture, regular humans are called sons of God. And of course, Jesus is called the son of God. But neither of those translations would make sense in the context of this intro. This is a group. This is Um, It has to be sons of gods, uh, primarily because it's happening in heaven. It can't, it's not humans. Um, It reminds me of the etiologies back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter six, there's this bizarre story where the sons of Elohim, the sons of gods, see that the daughters of men are beautiful and they take them as wives. And that's supposedly the origin of the giants that the Israelites ran into when they entered the promised land. And this first part of Job is a similar sort of story. The Hebrew in context says sons of gods. It doesn't fit our theology because it's not part of our theology. A heavenly court of various lesser gods Coming before a greater God is a common part of the ancient Mesopotamian and Canaanite theology. This intro is an ancient story that may all on its own have been the original story of Job. And it's possible that this later writer has taken that ancient story and written all the rest of Job as a sort of theological rebuttal, thinking through the questions raised in the old story, questions that humans have raised throughout all of history, and thinking about how God responds to these big questions. The last character in the intro is Satan. The Hebrew word is Satan. And we've just copied it letter for letter into English. We transliterated Satan and made it a name, Satan. But Satan in Hebrew is not a name. It is just a regular Hebrew word that means adversary. That's it. So in this ancient story, adversity is personified and called the adversary. So into this intro, the sons of God, of gods, and this adversary come in to hang out with God. And God asks the adversary what he's been up to. And the adversary says, oh, the usual wandering around on the earth. And God says, did you see my servant Job? Isn't he amazing? He fears God and turns away from evil. And the adversary says, well, why wouldn't he? He's no nothing but blessing from your hand. I'll make you a bet. If you take his blessings away, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you're on. Do that. But don't lay a finger on Job himself. And so Job loses his flocks and their shepherds in one fell swoop. And while the messengers are still telling him that news, he receives word that a mighty wind has collapsed the house. All of his children were gathered in and all of his children have been killed. Job, of course, is utterly distraught, but he does not curse God. And so the adversary loses his bet. But he wants an all or nothing round. So the whole heavenly betting cycle repeats itself with the same set of players. The adversary bets that if Job himself is stricken, he will surely curse God. And this time, God gives the adversary permission to strike Job physically, but not to kill him. And so Job is stricken with terrible, painful sores. He is so miserable, his wife suggests he just curse God and get it over with but Job refuses. It is very telling to me that Job's wife knows what the heavenly stakes are. In this story, she knows that the whole point of the wager is to get Job to curse God. And since she knows the stakes, that implies that Job knows them too, and he refuses to do it. The end. That's the end of the intro. That's the end of the ancient Job story. The whole story is self-contained. It's circular with a nice, tidy finish. The ending with Job's wife and with Job comes full circle back to the wager in the beginning. Now, I, like other scholars, take all of these hints, the language hints, the structural hints, the, you know, the very story itself, the words inside the story, and conclude that this intro is an old fable being repurposed here. I'm not saying to throw it out. It is part of the narrative setup, but I would never hang any theology whatsoever on these two chapters. This is Mesopotamian and Canaanite theology. Yahweh has proven over and over that he is not the same as the so-called Mesopotamian and Canaanite gods. He doesn't do stuff like this. We need to remove all the Mesopotamian and Canaanite cultural wrapping paper and just leave the intro with the understanding that it is just a setup to let the reader know that Job is a man who has done nothing wrong and bad things are happening to him and God is letting it happen. This is an age-old human situation. It's the rest of the book that is the important theological part. So knowing this, we can move past this setup to find that the real story Begins in chapter 2, verse 11. The characters introduced in this bit of prose at the end of chapter 2 are Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who come to comfort him. And when we look at the end of the story, which is also a brief bit of prose, the Lord has some things to say to those same three friends and to Job so now the story makes a lot more sense it begins with job and his three friends and it ends with job and he and his three friends now let's look at the characters in the middle chapters 3 through 27 are a dialogue between job and each of his three friends in turn that looks good but then chapter 28 is stuck in there and it has no characters at all. It is a standalone poem about looking for wisdom in all the different places all over the earth. It's a nice poem, but it adds absolutely nothing to the story, and it's pretty clear it was a later edition. So we're going to strike it from our theological hunt. You can read it as a standalone poem, but for what we're doing, we don't need to keep it in there. Chapters 29 through 31 are Job responding to his friends, and the first verse of chapter 32 tells us that his friends give up trying to convince him that he has sinned. So those passages all look good. The rest of chapter 32 all the way through chapter 37 is a monologue by a guy named Elihu. He shows up out of nowhere says he's been listening all along, but because he's a young man, he's been waiting for all the older and wiser men to finish talking. But since they've obviously failed to change Job's mind, he figures he knows more than they do and they should listen to him now. Elihu doesn't appear anywhere else in the story and he doesn't add anything of substance. His arguments are not new ones. So we're going to take a pass on Elihu. He was probably an embellishment added later. You can read his stuff and, you know, see what's in there, but we're not going to cover his chapters in class because they're kind of a, a, a an, an unhelpful tangent where the stuff that he says we're going to hear anyway. Then in chapter 38, God shows up and God and Job have a lethal chat. We definitely want to keep that part in. The end of chapter 42 is that final bit of prose I told you about between all of the characters, God, Job's three friends, and Job, and it concludes with a happily ever after. So that was some good work there. We've carefully and thoughtfully pruned out a lot of distracting underbrush. Now we have a story that should make a lot more sense. Let's stow our backpack tools and read the story as shown here to see what it has to tell us theologically. In the skinnier intro at the end of chapter two, the story begins as Job's three friends show up and are so horrified at the state Job is in that they weep, tear their clothes and throw dust on their heads. Then they sit right down on the ground beside Job for seven days and seven nights and don't say a word. Poor Job mumbles. He wishes he had never been born, never even been conceived. Poor guy. The actions of these friends are the most beautiful illustration I've ever seen of pastoral care in a time of utter loss. And devastation. They weep at the sight of him and then they sit down. They don't touch him. They don't tell him his children are in a better place. They don't ask him questions about how it happened. None of that. They sit in silence with him. Remember that. That is what to do in a time like this. Just be there. Don't try to fix it. It cannot be fixed. After that, they bless Job, do his laundry, stock the fridge and leave, right? Well, no, that's what they should have done. But unfortunately, they do the worst possible thing. The whole rest of their visit is a clinic in what not? to say, to someone who has endured an unimaginable loss or is battling a terrible, wasting disease. Up to bat first is Eliphaz. He says, Job, you used to comfort the afflicted, but you obviously don't believe what you preached. The innocent are never treated like this. It is the foolish who are stricken. So right off the bat, we see a big glaring hint that Eliphaz is full of it. We all know from personal experience that innocent people do indeed suffer a lot. Babies die. Children get cancer. Loved ones are lost. Then Eliphaz says, can a human be made pure by God like poof? Are you you're pure even though you're still human? No, of course not. Now, I'm obviously paraphrasing here. I'm paraphrasing all of this, but this is the gist of what he says in chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. And this, too, is a glaring theological error. We know that the only way humans are made pure is by God. It is so characteristic of God that we have a name for it. It's called grace. Another fancier word for it is justification. But it all means God's consistent desire to make us pure, even though in our own power, we fall terribly short. And we've seen throughout our studies that God delights in doing this. Eliphaz is way off base here. And Job responds saying, I wish God would let me die. You are my friends. You're supposed to be kind to me. I have not rejected God. I haven't done anything wrong. So God can't be punishing me. What what am I missing here? Job actually understands God well, right? He knows he's not done anything wrong and that God would not capriciously punish him. So now it's Bildad's turn, he says. God doesn't pervert justice. Now that is actually true. Then he says, but God doesn't just forgive people. Aha, we know Bildad is wrong about that, don't we? We know God does just forgive people. Bildad says, God dispatches bad people for their crimes and makes honest people pure and whole again. Uh, Nope. We know God does not throw people away. God's fire is a refining fire, leaving the person pure and whole. The goal of that fire is to restore and heal all people and allow us to draw near to God. It is only we who throw God away. It doesn't work the other way around. We know this, From how hard God works to bring his people near. Then Bildad says, you are a man who leans on a spider web. That's kind of what Jesus said when he taught about the difference between building your house on a rock instead of sand. And Job instantly knows that Bildad is clueless because Job knows he did build his house on the rock. Job worshiped God sought after God, is still seeking God. And Job responds, of course, no one is blameless before God. He is God. I am nothing before him, even if I am in the right. His holiness makes my righteousness twisted and perverse by definition. I am willing to admit my guilt freely, but I'd like to know what it is Uh uh-oh, hang on, Job, you're getting sucked into this bad theology of thinking that God is punishing you because you've done something wrong. Don't let them talk you into this. Then Job slips into prayer. You know everything about me, Lord, all the bad stuff, but please look at my situation from a human perspective. You gave me my gifts. Why did you let me be born if this is my end? This is so poignant because there in the middle, Job is asking for Jesus. And we know that God answers his prayer. All right, let's hear from the third friend. His name is Zophar. He says, this is a pack of lies. Of course, God has forgotten some of your crimes. Ouch. This is really hitting below the belt. Zophar is specifically addressing God's known character of forgiveness and mercy, which is all Job has to cling to right now. Zophar says, God sees wrong in you that you cannot see. So open yourself to God and remove any wrongdoing you're clinging to. I find Zophar the most insidious of the arguers. His words sound so right but they are so wrong. God does not hold us accountable for what we do not know we are doing. That is clear in the Mosaic law. And God has always, even back in the wilderness during the Exodus, made easy ways for his people to confess their sins when they do become aware of them. God never punishes people for something they don't even know they are doing wrong. And Job has been agonizingly soul-searching and coming up with nothing. God would have let him know if there was anything God was concerned about. Zophar is wrong, wrong, wrong. Poor Job. Job says, you are all so smug, thinking you know better than me. But anyone can see that evil men often prosper while the good do not. The things you are saying about God are false. I will lay out my case before him, even if it is useless. And Eliphaz answers, saying, well, aren't you puffed up? Your own mouth condemns you, you prideful man. By the way, chapter 15 is one of the a few places in Job where the passage says God does not trust his holy ones. This is a reference to that ancient cultural understanding that the gods don't trust their own angels or courts. I pointed out to you so you can see how strongly the Mesopotamian and Canaanite cultural threads are influencing this story. This pops up a couple of times. So recognize those for what they are. They are not theological statements about Yahweh. They're part of the Mesopotamian and Canaanite theology. Eliphaz continues, it is the wicked who live their life in terror. Nothing they will do will last. And Job answers him saying, I've heard about enough of this. All of you can come and go. and There's not a wise man among you. Please just let me die and go down to Sheol which you all remember is just the grave, place of the dead, not a place of punishment or reward. It's like a cemetery. Back then, people believed you received your reward or punishment during your lifetime. And when you died, you were dead. All that was left was your memory living on in your descendants. You yourself went to Sheol, the grave. So, of course, his so-called friends are not going to just go away and leave him alone. Bildad speaks up, why do you think so little of us? I agree with Eliphaz that the wicked will fall into traps and their memory will be wiped from the earth. And Job is like, why do you continue to crush me? If I had erred, I would know it. And I'm telling you, God alone has done this to me. I scream and God does not answer. Why can't you have mercy on me? Isn't what God has done to me enough? And then Job says some of the most faith-filled words ever spoken. Even within his cultural context of thinking this terrible suffering must be something God is doing to him without cause, even in the middle of what he thinks. He speaks the bedrock faith of his heart. Handel sets Job's words to music, and they have become some of the most famous in history. Job declares, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon this earth. And after I have been flayed, even then, in my very flesh, I myself shall see God with my own eyes. Oh, how my heart yearns for that day. Job knows God will come for him because he knows God. Now, Job lived way before any of the prophets we've studied, and there's a good chance that these words may have been added as the story was written down in the time of the exile after the many end-time prophecies. But either way, these words are by someone who has themselves been through hell and knows down to his very bones that God lives and will come to redeem us to save us from evil, and to dwell with us physically. This is a consistent promise of the Bible from beginning to end. You would think that would shut Job's friends up entirely. But no, Zophar leaps into the breach, saying, So I have an idea. The wicked may indeed know gladness, but it's fleeting. They will disappear, melt turn to dust, and their crimes will be laid bare. This is certainly their inheritance from God. And Job says, will you guys let me get a word in edgewise? Why are the wicked rich, safe, and happy with children and livestock? They thumb their nose at Shaddai. They have no need for him. Now, you guys remember that Shaddai is the name for God that emphasizes God as the blessing giver. This name for God is used throughout the book of Job. Job continues, does God save the bad stuff only for those who love him? Let God repay the wicked their due. We all die, some full and satisfied and others bitter and empty. Don't you notice? Basically, Job is saying the same thing we heard from Solomon at the bitter end of his life when he said, Time and chance happen to us all. Jesus says the same thing, but without the bitterness. Jesus turns it upside down. He says, Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And he says that in the context of us needing to love everyone, good or bad, just like God does. Jesus has it right. Then Eliphaz pops up one more time saying, so you're saying God is punishing you for being good? Notice how twisted this response is. That's not at all what Job is saying. Eliphaz then accuses Job of all kinds of heinous crimes and says, no wonder you are being punished, for God sees your crimes. If you would only be silent and listen, if you will just repent, Shaddai will become your treasure. And Job shoots back, well, I wish I could find God. I would lay my case out before him. He alone will listen But I cannot find him. I have sought for him everywhere. He has tested me and knows I am gold. So what is wrong? Poor Job. His friends are a stumbling block to him. He keeps falling into their trap of, you've done something wrong, Job, and God is punishing you. It is so easy to think that when you're suffering, right? And Job cries, Why do the wicked prosper while the poor suffer? Murderers and adulterers and thieves go free for now, but surely they will shrivel up and wither away. God's eye is surely on them, right? And now we're getting down to the crux of the matter. God surely sees the evil and God will eventually act against it, right? Bildad, of course, throws in his his two cents. No human is righteous before God. He has the power over all the heavens and all the earth. Even Sheol trembles before him. Nothing new there. Same old, same old. And Job is absolutely fed up with these guys. He says, you counsel without wisdom and uh, help without power. I will never concede that you are right. I have done No, wrong. I miss the days when God was with me, and I thought my blessings would never end. But now God yanks me up by the neck of my clothing and throws me in the mud. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. Well, God's had about enough of Job's three friends, too. And God shows up at this point and says, I've got something to say to you, Job. Who is this giving counsel without knowledge? That's an almost direct quote from what Job said to his friends just a moment ago in chapter 26. God is saying, Job, you're listening to the wrong voices. And even though God is talking to Job, the bald face of the statement makes it pretty clear that these words are directed at Job's three friends. It was the three friends who've been giving Job bad counsel. And for the next couple of chapters, God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Note the sons of God's cultural overlay there. Then in chapter 40, God says, Will the one arguing with God correct him? Let him who disputes God respond. Now, most translations choose the harshest options for these words and make God sound wrathful and angry. Like, who the heck are you? You know? But I think there's a very different way to hear these words. Here's what I think is being said. I think. When God says, will the one arguing with God correct God? God is saying, none of your questions are too big for me. I already know all the answers. I know what is right. Nothing you can ask me can diminish me. And when God says, let him who disputes God respond, I think God is saying, go ahead. Ask me your questions. That's all Job wanted. Job just wanted to be able to talk to God about all the horrible things that were happening. And if you remember from that beautiful part that Handel picked up on where Job says how he longs to see God, that that is the basic kernel foundational part of what his heart is yearning for. Job here in this chapter is faced with the living God. And Job says, Lord, how can I respond to you? I am worthless. And God says, okay, get ready then. I'll ask you the questions. But despite how this is always taught, I don't think this is done in anger either. I think God is saying, I know what your questions are, but you're asking the wrong questions. Look at it from this perspective. Will you hold me guilty so you can be acquitted? How can you say that I am in the wrong? Are you all powerful? If so, then I will acknowledge you. But look at the behemoth, which in this culture probably refers to the hippo. Can you control him like I can? And Leviathan, which in this text is described as a fire-breathing dragon, again, a cultural overlay, can you make him beg for mercy? I don't think so. If you simply laid a hand on him, you'd melt with fear. And Job says, I know you can do anything, Lord. A minute ago, you asked, who is giving counsel without knowledge? I can see now that it was me. In days past, I told about your wonders that were indeed beyond my knowledge. I had only heard rumors of you before, and I repent of that, for now I have seen you with my own eyes. You see, God didn't just give Job a verbal, intellectual, theological answer. Instead, God revealed himself to Job in all his power and glory. It took a couple of chapters of the book. There was so much sensory information. God spoke into Job's heart. It. It reads a lot like the spirit grabbing Ezekiel by the hair and taking him on a whirlwind tour. God shows himself to Job in a particularly powerful and personal way. We've run across this before with Moses and with Elijah, just to name two specific examples. There are others. Job is one of only a handful of people in the Bible who see God with their own eyes. And this, as it turns out, Answers all of Job's questions. God is enough, more than enough, to fill all of Job's wounded and empty places. Then the Lord turns to the three friends and tells them they screwed up big time and totally misrepresented God and that they need to do burnt offerings and ask Job to pray for them. And when Job Praise for the friends who kicked him when he was down. Then and only then, God restores Job's fortunes two times over. And all Job's kinfolk and friends who had known him from before come and grieve his losses with him and comfort him, quote, for all the harm the Lord had brought on him, end quote. They still don't get it. They still think the Lord did this to Job for some reason. But Job knows better now. Job knows that bad things happen to good people and to bad people alike, but that what matters is that God is with us through it all, truly, physically with us. And Job is glad to have the comfort of his friends, I'm sure. And in the end, Job lives a long and happy life and dies full of contentment at the age of 140, which by the way is another way we know this is a very old story originating back in the time of Abraham or before when lifespans were very long. So let's go into our breakout groups. We're going to focus on the fact that God's answer was not a theological statement, but was God allowing Job to see him in a deeper and more literal way. We'll look at a couple of other times this happened in scripture and talk about what difference this sort of encounter makes. Um, And I just want to tell you not to overthink this. This, These are not trick questions. It's free flowing. You can talk about whatever you want. You know, of course, be sure to turn your videos and your um, microphones back on and I'll see you in a few minutes. Mm
1: -hmm. So,
0: this in the breakout sessions i um walked you through elijah um who had had jezebel had everybody in the country on a manhunt for him had contract out on his head and elijah figured he was completely alone and and god showed up and said no you're not alone i'm here and here here is <laughs> here's who i am you know and, uh, and then in the second story, it was Moses, um, who was at the very cusp, the beginning of leading these slaves um, out of uh, bondage. The, uh, he's, abused, he's leading just a gigantic group of abused people. Can you imagine? <laughs> and he's trying to tell them um, that this God is a different God, um, and they've worn him down. They have beat him down. They are mad at him all the time. They're going to kill him all the time. He just, he's done. And he leaves his brother in charge. He goes up on the mountain. His brother screws up, you know, and, and does the whole golden calf thing. And, and, and Moses is like beyond done with these people and, and says, God, if you, if you don't come with us, like I'm out of here, it's, it's over. And, and so God shows up in a very real way. I mean, like a physical, real sea God sort of way. And um, so much so that, that, Job, that, that Moses' face shines for quite a while after that and scares everybody half to death. Um, and so my question was uh, basically, how do these stories relate to Job? What is it that happened? Did these did talk to me about any of these three men or others in the scripture who see God um, that did something change for them? Did their situation change? Did they change? Their witness was that something was different. What do you think happens here? We talked about their situation
2: didn't change. It was still what it was. And their goals were still the same, but they had a different understanding. Mm -hmm. They had a different revelation to them that helped them to see things differently and carry out what they needed to do.
1: One of the things that that we were talking about um, in the first story about Elijah, several of us picked up on your wording in the description of the story about um, God appearing after all these huge things, God appearing as a simple breath. And that that went back to what we learned earlier about the word Yahweh being breath. Um, And that it was in the quiet. It was getting away from the noise, getting away from You know, not only the real threats, but even the noise of the expectation of how God would appear that allowed Elijah to feel God and experience God. Um, We didn't quite get to this in the Moses story, but even there, God, when passing by Moses, is repeating the name Yahweh, Yahweh. Um, and I think so often as humans, we expect God, God to be this, you know, huge, noisy, overwhelming experience when frequently it's that very quiet, intimate, personal, almost breathing experience. And then we talked about Jesus pulling away from the noise of the crowd to get restored and, when we're in the middle of a situation feeling that we need to pull away and be quiet in order to be restored.
3: I think, I think that goes to like also to like Psalm 4610, where he says, be still and know that I'm God. And this is, this is these guys, these very influential guys um, in our biblical history that are experiencing that. And um, we can learn that from them. Uh, I think that in Job, I just, I've always marveled at Job's perseverance and at God's perseverance. <laughs> and uh, I'm not surprised that Satan perseveres because, you know, I mean, he keeps trying, but he he fails, but he keeps trying anyway. But um, it's, it's just speaks to the perseverance of both um, Yahweh and, um, and us as his creations.
4: I think it's interesting as I'm hearing kind of thinking back on all three stories again it's a reminder god meets each person where they're at. So I think of Elijah, if I'm hiding, if someone's, even if you're like playing hide and go seek, you're you're always trying to be quiet, right? You're, mm-hmm. And God was so specific in that way that he met him while he's afraid of everything. He'd come loud and think that somebody was chasing him or making him feel more in danger, but he met him while he was hiding in a whisper. like. And yet here is the opposite when Moses is like, besides himself just over it and it's needing like this big like he's he asked to show forgot to show the glory and he does and so I I think it's so cool that it is very personal to each story how he connected with them mm, and yeah. the fact that he whispered when here is Elisha freaking out and hiding I think it's beautiful
5: <laughs> that's lovely
0: yeah. Martha the I, case- I heard
5: you about to say something it was interesting that with moses and elijah he meets them reveals himself when they're off alone mm-hmm. and um, with job god addresses job with those yahoos that are next to him <laughs> <laughs> good good word <laughs> um, and and it had to do somehow Job was able because Job yearned for God to 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 show himself. Um and did even with these distractors around. It does beg the, you know, the God is always with us thing. Um it does to me beg in Job why it took God so long to let Job know I've been here. I am here. Because Job suffered a long time and he wanted God that whole time, didn't he? he did. And he, he expressed he his crying out so many times. And God waited.
1: Do you, do you think that part of that might have been because God knew that Job's friends had to hear this too? Do do we know if they overheard the conversation between Job and God or was this just they could hear Job's side, you know, like a telephone call?
0: At some point they heard God because at the end, God told them they needed to screw up and do sacrifices. So I'm presuming <laughs> they could hear this.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, right. and, they,
1: and maybe the point was this wasn't just a message for Job. This was a larger message for Job, his friends, his wife everybody else who were questioning what was happening.
5: But why did, why did Job have to suffer until that? I, okay.
6: I, this is Joe and I'm sorry. I can't do video. I I truly feel that it was his most broken moment because I, I honestly feel that in almost any job to me is the ultimate faithful servant who knew God was there and just in his most broken moment was like, what have I done? Where are you? When God says, what do you mean? I, I am here. Um, and again, I don't, and I think that's the thing is, well, it is, it is hard for me to translate that God didn't make Job suffer when we find out that when Job prays for his friends, all his riches are restored. But um. so maybe that's my segue. I have really carried last week heavily. I felt bad that I derailed the Bible study and I even typed out this big apology (laughs) and then went back and deleted it later. Um, And I feel that this, (laughs) that this Bible lesson is poignantly following last week in that, um, I, I think that sometimes people have the lesson of God wrong and even, and he is a good and faithful God. He's not wrathful.
7: I I also think that, you know, when I've had trouble and I've talked about my troubles to friends. I've gotten a lot of bad advice and I <laughs> just don't listen and just don't get it. And I think this is a story that shows that we need to be careful about who we want to open ourselves to. And, and that, um, you know, for me, it's, it's understanding that God may be in everyone, but not everybody listens to God, and not everything that comes out of everybody's mouth is from God, and it's important to find those people who really truly speak for God.
2: I think that's wonderful, Julie. It, it reminds me of the beginning of this story about how Job's friends came to be with him, Reminds me of a story about my son, my youngest son. When he was much younger, like nine, nine years old, his friend who's Jewish and agnostic had a pet die. And I remember him coming to me and saying, we have to go to his house. I have to sit with him. And that's all they did was they just sat there together. If his friend wanted to talk, he'd talk, but my son was just there to be with him in that moment. And I think sometimes that's what we're called to do is just be there for people as friends, not necessarily to give that advice that may or may not be the right advice. So again,
6: I feel this poignancy, and I'm going to go back to that, Maybe Job actually was the perfect uh, fisher of men there, because in his greatest moment of need, he turned around and prayed for his friends, and that's exactly the net we're supposed to cast.
4: Well, it it reminds me of the continued theme of humility. So we get caught up, I think, as humans to focus on the physical and only on what's happening in the now without without taking into consideration pretzel time <laughs> without con- taking into consideration that through everything we experience good bad is god using it and allowing us to continue to draw closer to him know him have more humility to then take a step forward in that refining purifying journey that we're all in I don't
0: know
4: right so I think that catastrophes are difficult and looking at Job by the physical things he's lost is hard and heavy for us but when we take a step back and recognize there was something greater that God was at work not only for him for his friends and it isn't about him regaining everything he lost but it was the act of I'm wondering humility of then saying I am no different than my friends and I can pray for them as well. And that act, I think was powerful. Mm
0: -hmm. And, and I think that it, it, it goes even another step, Erica, I think you're on the right track there. I think um, that part of it is our humility before God to say, all right, God, I don't understand why you're not fixing this. But you're God. And I'm not. And I trust that you have a reason for this.
2: And I think too, back to Joe,
6: Joe, I agree with, I just read Marlene's, Joe, ask questions. I mean, I feel like part of the theme of even today's lesson was, ask the question, you know, it's, it sounds like God is inviting us to ask the question and then kind of tied to humility, you know, asking the question in humility and coming to a safe space, which, I mean, I'm not saying it's a safe space for everybody, but I feel like this is a great place for us to knock those things around with humility. Mm -hmm. Um, So Joe, I concur with Marlene. I think that this was an awesome place and it, it spurred us to dig deeper and to ask God similar questions.
0: So keep I also want to get back to um, Martha's. Thank point, you. Um, Thank you. About why did God wait so long? And I think there uh, might be two ways there. I'm sure there's a zillion, but there's two ways to think of it. One, one being that this is a story. <laughs> and, and, and so it's not a literal, this is what happened. Um, it is a device for working through all this theology and revealing it for how bad it was. But we all know Job's story. We've lived Job's story. We get this, you know, um, and God does seem to tarry when we are suffering. And it is not helpful when people say, well, if you would just be more humble or be more whatever, be more open or do more soul searching or whatever, then God will come and fix it because that's not how it works. We hurt. We hurt for a long, long time. Some people's lives are a hell from beginning to end. Where is God? God is, God is there, but there are many times we can not see God. We don't feel God. We don't have that visceral experience that Job has. And so I, I do not think that God ever tarries to meet us in our need. I think God, by definition, is there. I also know that our suffering does not disappear. Um, And that's partly why I picked these stories from Elijah and Moses to bring forward in the group discussion and ask the question, what changed? Because the answer is not a lot. Martha. When I
5: I think there's a couple things going on with, job that as i was listening to all of the last series of comments came into mind and one is job kept listening to and arguing with his friends Mm -hmm. it was what shifted was when he talked to god about his pain he complained to his friends about his pain he complained to his friends and he and he he claimed his faith when he talked to his friends, but he kept arguing with them. And it was when he when he said, so God, what the heck is going on here? You know, when he addressed God and God answered him. So God, one could look at it as God patiently waited
3: for that. I think that part of that has to do with Um, our own expectations of when something should take place, you know, the solution to our problems or whatever they are. And at that point, as Martha pointed out, when he started talking to God, he is acknowledging that God is there and he's acknowledging that God is present with him and that God can do something about it. And sometimes we just go, you know, well, okay, why doesn't this take care of itself? I mean, this is when I want, and this is when I want it, but
1: yeah another thought that just came to me based on what what Martha and Barb said was that um, when Job was saying throughout this whole conversation with his friends you know I've been begging God to come and why isn't God coming behind that it seems like was Job was kind of buying into some of his friends view of what was happening, even though he couldn't figure out what he'd done that was wrong, but he was still in this mindset of this must be punishment for something. I just can't figure out what it is. I want God to tell me what I did wrong so I can fix it. Where when he finally was talking directly to God What God was saying was, you're asking all the wrong questions. You know, get out of that mindset of cause and effect and just look at the bigger picture. And that's what changed for Job was his perception of the situation and of God.
3: That's that's kind of a contextual thing there, too. You know, the, the he was putting his own human context there instead of God's context. He's looking at it from a human aspect. Well, the cause and effect, like Marlene said, you know, well, if this is happening to me, I must have done something wrong. I mean, and his friends reinforced that. Who needs
1: friends like that anyway? <laughs> well, but, you know, arguing with his friends, even though he kept saying to them, "But I didn't do anything wrong, What's right. wrong? you know, um, that was kind of an internal argument, too, I think, mm-hmm. for him. And and what he understood later was that this really, you know, like, like, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And and in some of that conversation, God was saying, you know, are you the one that created the universe? Are you the one that can control these things? Or, you know, do you really think that by correcting something you're not even aware of that you are going to then reverse the catastrophe that's happened to you, or bring blessing—that's not how it works. That isn't what's going on here.
2: Oh, and I mentioned God would want to admit to betting on Job.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's why I took that whole front part and said, you know, just eh, you need to take that aside <laughs> because, and it's unfortunate that that's how we have—that's the lens we've always viewed Job through.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: No. I'm I'm sorry, Julia, could you say that again? I didn't quite get it. Oh, just
2: the part about the first part of the story where God and the adversary are betting on Job. Oh, right, right, right. I don't think God would want to admit to that. <laughs> <laughs>
6: What I found, I mentioned this in group, is that for me these are like the greatest of the greats of faithful service in the in the Bible, and yet they all had very broken moments
1: mm-hmm.
6: before they truly seemed to understand.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: I think that gives us hope.
0: It does, and I think that that's the the story here in these in these three stories of Job and Elijah and Moses is that. God is there for the questions, you know? And we we're oh it's okay to be fully human. Um so I we probably need to end right about here. Thank, Thank you, Gamale. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.